Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode. This week, we're on the road in upstate New York to visit the Finger Lakes and find out what makes this cool climate emerging wine region one to watch. Plus, later on, as always, recommendations of medal winners from the IWSC. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Head around five hours upstate from the bright lights of New York City. And as you approach the border with Canada, the pace feels strikingly different. Rural, bucolic, literally a breath of fresh air after the choked streets of Manhattan. This is the Finger Lakes and its heritage wine country. They've been working with grapes for years, though not historically with varieties that you might recognise. Yet it's also an exciting, emerging, cool climate region. How come? Well, we're about to find out as we meet the producers making waves with wines that are fresh, often thrilling and increasingly fated. Approach the Finger Lakes by air and it's apparent that they are aptly named. Relatively narrow, fairly long stretches of water that appear to hang north to south. There are 11 lakes in total, but the wine trail is really centred on three. Seneca, which is the deepest at around 180 metres. Cayuga, the next deepest, and also Kuka. Kelby Russell is the winemaker at Red Newt Cellars overlooking Seneca Lake, and he gave me an introduction to the Finger Lakes. Yes, it's a region that uh, I think provokes confusion because you hear New York State and you think uh, wine in New York State, do they grow them in the skyscrapers? This is uh, an an easy thing to think. Uh, The truth is that our region is much closer to Canada. Uh, When I'm working abroad especially, I like to tell people that we're an hour and a half from Niagara Falls. I think that helps put people in the right frame of mind, both of where we are uh, and also it immediately makes people think of cold, which is probably an appropriate reaction because it's a cool climate up here. Yeah, I was in uh, Manhattan at the weekend and uh, I wore a pair of shorts and a T-shirt. It was uh, a a really beautiful weekend. And I got off the plane at Syracuse and it's absolutely freezing. It's really very different, isn't it? Yes, Syracuse is very proud to be the snowiest city in the US. Uh, You know, we get somewhere in the neighborhood of 
three, three and a half meters of snow every year uh, in the, during the winter. So it's, uh, it's very different up here. It's, it's cold, it's continental climate. Uh, and in the name of the region, Finger Lakes, it kind of gives away why the region is successful for wine. It's the, the lakes and the moderating influence uh, that they provide for, for the vineyards around them. And this is a classic wine story. So many times we see regions where a combination of a body of water and slopes allow vineyards to do spectacular things. And so it's uh, all about uh, moderation, both in winter and summer with the lakes then. Absolutely. I mean, uh, from an existential level, the lakes provide enough warmth during the winter on the slopes to keep the vines alive uh, and to keep the buds alive uh, in particular. Uh, that's also resulted in a selection of what vines work best for the region. But uh, at this point, we've kind of honed in on that. Uh, but then the lake stays cold in the spring, which is great because it delays bud break uh, and at least knock on wood, we don't have to worry about spring frost too often. Uh, you know, climate change, maybe in 20 years, it's different. Uh, and then on the back end, it keeps things kind of cool. It keeps the air moving during the summer, which is good for reducing disease pressure. And then especially in the fall, it extends the ripening window because the lake will still be swimmable. Uh, the lakes, I should say, will still be swimmable into late September uh, when the weather is actually getting quite frigid otherwise. As I understand it, it it's um, winter here for the vines is kind of a battle for survival and summer um, is is really rather benign for a vine. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, I think people are surprised when they see some of the, the grapes that we work with in, in small quantities, uh, but you know, we have vineyards with Syrah planted in them uh, and people think of the region as a cold climate. How could you possibly ripen? Uh, and the issue isn't so much the ripening. Uh, the issue is more vines that can handle the cold of the winter without, you know, sort of undue uh, needs in the vineyard uh, to, to get them through. So tell us about uh, Red Newt then. Yes, Red Newt uh, is a, a winery on the southeast side of Seneca Lake, um, which is the main lake in the region. Uh, it's a little sub-region that we uh, jokingly have called the Banana Belt. Uh, if you ever see that, uh, or hear about that, that's this little slice of the Finger Lakes because it's the warmest subregion. Uh, and Red Newt, it was founded in 1998 by a husband and wife team, Dave and Deb Whiting, uh, with a real passion both as a winery and as a bistro, which was rare at the time, to celebrate uh, local farmers and local uh, vineyards. Uh, single vineyard wines, which was the first time that had happened in the Finger Lakes, uh, and farm to table dining, which was also the first time it had happened in the Finger Lakes. And frankly, in 1999 was pretty rare anywhere in the world. That was that seems passe now, but that was cutting edge at the time. And we're going to talk about uh, vinifera um, later in this episode of The Drinking Hour. But uh, have you always at Red Newt been dealing with vinifera grapes, so the European grape varieties? Uh, Red Newt has always done a little bit of both uh, as, a, as a winery that was kind of of a, a certain era. Uh, there was always a local demand uh, because people grew up drinking some of the local grapes. Uh, and Red Newt, especially in one year when uh, there was such a bad winter that a lot of the vines got, uh, didn't die, but the buds were fried, uh, decided to make uh, a wine supposedly just as a one-off. Uh, and as it turns out, if you make a local wine out of a local grape, but make it to international standards, it becomes far more successful than you could ever plan for because people do appreciate when, when care and time is put into something. Uh, so Red Newt uh, is overwhelmingly vinifera focused uh, and Riesling focused at that. Uh, but we still have a couple of these heritage grapes we like to tinker around with. And uh, the, those grapes, it will be fair to say, the 
um, the, the, the American uh, uh, sort of historic grapes uh, don't have in, um, in kind of uh, international wine terms the greatest of reputations. Is that unfair? I think it's a little unfair. Uh, I think uh, certainly I don't know that they necessarily have the, the complexity inherent to them for maybe what top, top wines, uh, what we look for in those wines. But uh, I think it's unfair that they kind of get castigated when they make really beautiful wines uh, at a, a really approachable price point and frankly with much less input in the vineyard, uh, which is something we're all thinking about with climate change. Uh, and they and they made the region. Uh, the region started in, uh, it's actually a very old region. It started in the 1800s, uh, mid-1800s, with millions and millions of cases of champagne, as they called it, made out of these native grapes that they were exporting to champagne uh, and selling in Europe, in the European market, uh, very cleverly by changing the names of their post offices here uh, to things like Rem and Epernay, so they could label it bottled in Rem. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing uh, kind of... Um, uh, piece of, of, of history. Um, having said that, um, sparkling wine here is, is uh, with the kind of uh, the champagne varieties, is really growing, isn't it? Yes, it's, uh, it's something that's always been, I think, explored here, I, or I should say in the last 50 years as the, the region has come on. Uh, and it's always been like a, a, a secret, I want to say, that every most of the wineries here do a little bit of it's uh, always astonishingly well done. It's a, the climate works perfectly for it. Uh, and I think in the last five years, and really since the pandemic in particular, uh, the interest in those wines has skyrocketed. It's, um, I've just been in Manhattan, as I was, as I was saying, and it's um, still striking that there aren't as many of the uh, New York wines um, in the market, in the restaurants, in the wine shops, um, in, uh, in New York as you might expect. Um, why do you think that is? I think it's one of those, uh, those situations where uh, the, the nearness of the region almost breeds contempt. Uh, there was a long time where the New York market was openly antagonistic to Finger Lakes wines. Uh, and uh, up until maybe 10 years ago, for the most part, uh, the New York City reaction to Finger Lakes wines was either, where are those? Uh, or two, those are like the terrible wines from the country that no, like, why would we drink those when we have access to everything here? Uh, and that's, that started to change thanks to some great tastemakers in the city that really uh, looked at New York wines with fresh eyes, thanks to winemakers and owners and, and people up here going down to the city and, and teaching people more about the wines. Uh, and frankly, there's just been, a, I th in the U.S. in particular, a stylistic shift, uh, the sort of uh, wines that were really popular in the 90s and 2000s that the Finger Lakes could never make, these sorts of bigger, heavier red wines. Uh, they're not out of fashion necessarily, but there's now an appreciation for uh, maybe more light and medium-bodied red wines in particular, and certainly for uh, you know, a, a grape like Riesling, which is eternal. It certainly is. Uh, whilst you've had some work to do um, down in New York, uh, it, at the same time, internationally and, and particularly in London, where I come from, there's been a, a real awakening to the quality uh, that's coming out of uh, the Finger Lakes in particular and New York more generally. Um, why do you think that is? I think uh, there's a couple of things going on there. First, uh, just to tie it back, I'll, we'll give some credit to New York. Uh, to New York City, that is, which is, uh, I feel a bit like it's the, the line from New York, New York. If I can make it there, I can make it anywhere. Uh, and because the market was antagonistic to the Finger Lakes, 
and we were competing against the best of the best from around the world, frankly, much like London in terms of that wine market. Uh, for the wineries that have succeeded in New York Metro, it means that our prices were competitive and our quality to sort of price ratio, you know, however you want to put that together, uh, was internationally sound already by the before we even left our own state. Uh, so I think that uh, kind of laid a good foundation for success uh, when we started to export that our prices weren't out of whack. And, and I know that our prices are, are more expensive, uh, but that's, uh, but the quality is there to meet that, uh, which has, has done well in London in particular. Uh, I think the other thing that uh, it might be surprising for people when they try our wines initially is that you think New York, and right there's the joke you think of New York City, but also people think of American wine. They think of New World wine. Uh, and I think the truth is that the Finger Lakes is much more of an old world wine region. I mean, these terms are, are kind of useless to some extent, but I like to think of it uh, in the sense of uh, both cool climate, but also vintage variation. Uh, and I think there's a big difference between us and the West Coast in that on the West Coast, they have vintage variation for sure, but it's a pretty narrow range of variation. The standard deviation is pretty small. In the Finger Lakes, we're much more like a Burgundy, much more like a Bordeaux, or obviously any spot in Germany, where year to year can be totally different. And it kind of disabuses you of the notion of a perfect wine, that like every year you can make the perfect wine. Uh, instead, it makes you uh, realize your job as a winemaker is to really uh, celebrate the vintage and to celebrate the, the vineyard uh, in that year the best you can. It's a, it's a philosophical change. And I think it's why old world uh, people who have, have grown up drinking old world wines and certainly old world winemakers when they visit the Finger Lakes uh, immediately respond to what we're doing. Kelby Russell, the winemaker at Red Newt Cellars, giving us an excellent introduction to the Finger Lakes and that celebrated cool climate. If you go back just a few decades, New York State was almost exclusively planted with American vines, Vitis Labrusca, or hybrid varieties. And it's only relatively recently in the grand scheme of things that the European Vitis vinifera, those varieties that uh, we know and love, have become properly established in places like the Finger Lakes. Dr. Constantin Frank was an early pioneer of vinifera, and his great-granddaughter, Megan Frank, who now runs the family winery with her father, Fred, overlooking Kuka Lake, told me about its fascinating history. Dr. Constantine Frank was the founder of our winery. Uh, he actually grew up in Odessa, Ukraine. From a very young age, became interested in grape growing and winemaking. Uh, actually made his first wine uh, by the age of 15 from his father's hobby vineyards in their backyard. Ended up earning a PhD at the Polytechnic University of Odessa in Ukraine. And for over 30 years, devoted his life to research and experimentation in vineyards uh, throughout Eastern Europe. The family fled World War II. Um, so Constantine, his wife, and three children immigrated to America. Constantine was 52 years old, didn't speak a single word of English, didn't have anything to his name, uh, didn't know a single soul in America. and. For after a short stint of washing dishes in Manhattan, he ended up here in the Finger Lakes because it was really the nearest location where they were planting vines and growing grapes and realized the potential for this region. So at that time, there was no vinifera, no European grape varieties. 
So there was no Chardonnay, no Riesling, no Pinot Noir, no Cabernet Franc. Uh, there was only the American varieties, or what we would call the species Vitis Labresca. So Concord, Catawba, Niagara. Uh, these are grapes we more associate with jams or jellies today, but they were very prominently used in wine production, um, dating all the way back to the 1860s here in the Finger Lakes region. The French-American hybrids were becoming popular. We're talking this is the 1950s here in New York. So that is a cross between the European species and the American species. And Constantine was just not satisfied with the French-American hybrids or the, the American varieties. He felt, why bother with these varieties that are not going to give you top quality production wines? He would say, you Americans deserve only excellence. And he really believed that. And he knew that the European varieties, that vinifera varieties were, would, would be possible here. So he set out to basically prove the naysayers wrong. He had nothing to lose. Uh, you know, he was a, a researcher at the end of the day and basically started his own experiment station here in 1957 just 11 short years after arriving in America, had his first vintage in 1962, and focused on varieties like Riesling, like Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, but also lots of odd, oddball grapes, uh, like Ricazzatelli, Seperavi, which we still have today, Georgian varieties that were very, very prominent in Ukraine. And uh, today we continue that legacy of experimentation uh, we have work with over 17 different vinifera varieties and make over 40 different wines. Wow. What made your great-grandfather, Constantine, so convinced that these European vinifera varieties uh, would work? Because he was really, at the time, he was rowing against the tide, wasn't he? He certainly was. I think he was not afraid of our cold climate here. He was very used to that, you know, being brought up and trained in Eastern Europe where they would actually have to bury all of the vines uh, to survive the cold winters. So he knew that the cold was not the issue, that uh, the very interesting glacial till soil types that we have because of the way uh, the Finger Lakes were formed during the last ice age, you know, over 10,000 years ago, we have um, basically the pulling uh, of these um, lakes being formed that have left behind a myriad of different soil types. So he was very attracted to that, um, particularly on the west side of Cuca Lake, where we're based, we have a very high content of shale. So the story goes, remember English was his seventh language. <laughs> he picked up a handful of soil and said, good soil. And that was really what he needed. Uh, he, he felt that the elevation was, was very appropriate, that the moderating influence from the lake was something that would help the European varieties thrive here. Um, and again, the cool climate was something he was used to. So planting varieties that uh, you know, could be used as an asset and not a liability was something that he, he really foresaw as big potential. And his legacy is here around us now and in the wines that I've been uh, tasting. You know, he's been thoroughly vindicated uh, with his 
uh, passion for uh, European um, vinifera. Um, and the winery is still in, in family hands. So from him, it went to your grandfather, to your father. Now you're the first uh, uh, woman running uh, the, the, the family business. Um, it's uh, uh, hugely important to have family wineries. It can also be a challenge running a family business, I think, can't it? It certainly can. Yeah, it's definitely not for the faint, faint of heart, I would say. Um, my, my father, Fred, has been um, exceptionally patient with me, given me a lot of autonomy at a very young age. And he's sort of uh, helped kind of push me towards a path, you know, within the wine industry to make sure uh, I get education and, and also different work and life experiences outside of this small area that's really helped prepare me. But it, there's definitely, uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of, you know, challenges, you know, with the family business. And um, I think one for us, you know, we're celebrating our 60th anniversary this year. It's keeping one foot in the past to make sure you don't stray too far, you know, from what your ancestors started. But again, not becoming stagnant and not becoming, you know, um, tired with just doing the same old year after year and not questioning, why are we doing this? Is there a better way to do this? Um, should we be looking at a new piece of technology, a new grape variety? So having um, a foot in both worlds is really important. And I think that's almost my job as almost like a caretaker of this farm that you know, you want to have an eye to the future, but you also need to look behind you. And I hope that this family business is in our family for many more generations. And it's just that idea that it's not about me. You know, it's about our family and it's about this legacy and everyone that helps us, you know, along that journey. And you produce uh, an extraordinary number of wines from a, um, a, a, a kind of almost bewildering array of different grape varieties, thanks to your great-grandfather's uh, desire to experiment, uh, that scientist um, in him. Um, uh, wh why is it important to you um, today to be producing things like uh, Saparavi, the Cazzatelli, um, in the Finger Lakes? Yes, it is certainly something that's very important to continue that spirit of experimentation. And because, you know, relatively speaking, we're quite a young region here, you know, we're celebrating our 60th anniversary, but we don't have the hundreds of years of experience, you know, that they do across the pond. Um, you know, we do have to continue that work. And it started with Constantine with his, you know, 60 plus uh, studies on different varieties, looking at different rootstocks, looking at different clones, how they work with different soil types here. Um, there's just endless possibilities. And I think we have to continue that work. You know, this was his life work um, in order to continue to move on as a region and to continue to be competitive on a global stage. And why is that global stage um, important? Because you've got um, a very enthusiastic local market for your wines, haven't you? We do, certainly, which we're very thankful for. But again, we're nobody if we can't compete on the global stage. You know, we have such uh, potential here 
as a, a true cool climate region, you know, with our naturally high acidity levels, with our rocky soils, um, incredible potential for traditional method sparkling wines, Riesling, Pinot Noir, true cool climate varieties that really need that. Uh, that's where we thrive. That's where we can compete with the best. Megan Frank, fourth generation at Dr. Constantin Frank. Well, he was a pioneer, as we've heard, but there were also others. A decade or so later, from Germany's Mosul Valley came Hermann J. Wiemer, who established his eponymous winery in 1979, determined to prove that vinifera could thrive in the Finger Lakes. His apprentice uh, in the early noughties was Fred Merworth, uh, who, with his university friend Oscar Bink, has taken the mantle at Hermann J. Wiemer. The, the region is always centered on hybrid native production of wines, sparkling wines. Um, it's only in the last 50 to 60 years that we've really have gravitated towards um, European varieties, Riesling, Chardonnay, um, Gewürztraminers, Cabernet Francs. Um, and it's, it's a region that is it's a cool climate. Um, our wines carry kind of bright, fresh acid. Um, and it's also from, it's a cool grape growing region in terms of we, we have cold winters. And so choosing the right varietal um, is, is really important. Uh, getting those varietals into the growing season and then being able to realize that fruit has always been a challenge here. And so site selection has become very important. Um, where, you, where you grow your Rieslings, where you grow your Cabernet Francs, or your Gewürztraminers is, is something that's kind of new for us and um, is really important for us going, going forward. And uh, new is, is the word to use really because New York as a wine region in many respects from a vinifera perspective, so the European grape varieties, um, it really is um, quite a, a new player in the kind of global wine market, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, um, vinifera really started here in the, the late 50s, early 60s with Dr. Frank. Um, Herman came into the region in, in the mid to late 60s. Um, and it wasn't till a decade later that he started planting his own vinifera. And Seneca Lake, the lake that we're on, it's the largest lake in the Finger Lakes, the, the, the deepest, the largest water holding capacity, regulates the land around it um, quite well. Um, it wasn't until 1972 that the first vinifera was planted on, on Seneca Lake, which is relatively recent compared to you know, the European model that we, we strive by. You know? um, so um, we're, we're, we're new to this in, in that regard, and we're, we're, we're we constantly feel like we're playing catch up, trying to, to understand the varietals, understand the st styles, the different vineyard sites as fast as we can to, to be able to make better decisions in terms of planting and, and wines. So. And just explain from um, the perspective of a, 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 a viticultural specialist that, that you are, just what the lakes actually do uh, in terms of um, the influence, that water, those, those, those um, what from the air looked like witch's fingers right. hanging down. Um, explain what they're actually doing in terms of making it possible to do what you do. Yeah, there, there's two aspects to it. One is the winter and one is the summer. So if we look at the winter first, the reason that we can grow vinifera in central New York is because of the lakes. And it's the only reason, because um, Seneca and Cayuga Lake, the two largest lakes, don't freeze. And so you have this massive water that is regulating the air 
from either side of the lake, you know, from one mile to the west or one mile to the east. <clears throat> and that regulation allows the temperatures to never really get too low where you damage your vines and you, and you lose your crop. Um, there's a great picture from 2015 when we had this thing called polar vortex. There's a satellite view of, of the northeast of, of the US. And the only thing that you see are Seneca and Cuga Lake because they are still blue and everything else is white. And, and, and that is like the, the, the essence of, of why we can do what we, we can do because in those really cold winter days, we had moderating temperatures on either side of the lake that allowed these vines to survive. So that's the winter side of it. The summer side of it is um, kind of moderating the temperatures um, so that things don't get too warm or things warm up just enough. And again, you move off of the lakes by um, a mile and you just can't grow these varieties in the way that we, we expect to grow them. And so it makes that re this region that, that special. You specialize in Riesling here, and uh, that is something that uh, Herman J. Vima, the, the founder, did, and that uh, you've, you've taken up the mantle, you carry on. Um, why is uh, Riesling so special here? You know, it, it filled that first gap of what varietal can make it through the winters, as, as, as I was mentioning. And, and, and Riesling is, is a cold, hardy variety. Um, it, it, with, it can withstand very cold temperatures, but it also can withstand a really harsh growing conditions of, of disease pressure, um, um, you know, uh, different humidities. It's a, it's a fairly uh, robust variety from that standpoint. <clears throat> but I think the other part was, you know, Herman coming from Germany, it was kind of in his natural element to, to choose that variety. It's something he had worked with. It also sits really well with our diversity of mesoclimates and also soils. And that's really uh, allows us to um, have light, fresh styles. It also, as in, in more recent years, really pushed the limit of, of ripeness and, and complexity and textures. Um, and as we've planted more and more, and as growers have planted more and more, we, we realize that the, um, the levels of quality that we can achieve with this variety from this region for all those different reasons. And you farm uh, organically and in certain uh, plots, 30% uh, uh, of it um, uh, biodynamically as well. Um, uh, just uh, for, for those who might, I think most of us understand organic, for those, um, and it's quite a big question this, but in very simple terms, if you could, just for those listening who don't quite understand what biodynamic means, just, just um, Tell us how you understand it. Yeah, uh, biodynamic is um, first, first and foremost, the elimination of all synthetics. It's also creating an environment in which the vines are growing, that the vines become resilient to everything that threatens them um, in, in terms of, of disease and um, e even different climactic challenges. <laughs> and and, and I, th I think that is the the baseline for it. There, there's lots of different elements in terms of how you pick, when you can pick. Um, the lunar calendar is, is intimately involved in biodynamic farming. Um, 
your use of the land around the vineyard is intimately involved in your biodynamic farming. Um, those are all pieces we, we think about in terms of your biosphere, the, the, the sphere that you're living and you're working in. And everything, your water, your air, your, your soil. Um, and so for us, biodynamic is a w kind of a way of life. It's a way of, 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 of farming and maintaining um, the soil so that the vines are, are doing what they're naturally meant to do. And what difference does it make to the wine? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think a, a lot of biodynamic producers are, or, or people who are looking at it, trying to figure that part out. Um, what I've noticed in the wines is um, they carry a, um, a, a natural acidity, which is very striking, like a vibrancy to the acid um, that carries all the way through from fruit all the way into the bottle. That is something that's um, very clear in, in our first six vintages of it. Um, the, the, other, the other thing I think that the bio wines show is, um, I, don't, I don't necessarily think it's a, it's a, a true sense of place, but a, a sense of place that is very unique to those specific plots, even within the greater context of a site that we're growing on. Um, I know that sounds, it might sound a little weird, but the bio blocks have their own profile. And it's, it's, it's really striking to see that vintage after vintage. Fred Merworth explaining the complexity of biodynamic farming. As you may have gathered, Riesling rules in the Finger Lakes. At Forge Cellars, not far away, just the other side of the lake, which was established on Seneca Lake by Louis Barul, Rhone royalty from Gigondas, with his American business partner Rick Rainey. They take an approach based on single vineyard expression of Riesling. It's a kind of Burgundian approach uh, to Riesling, as assistant winemaker Liana Goddard explained to me. For us, Riesling is a very nice grape variety, but we don't talk about Riesling. We mostly talk about terroir. Uh, Riesling is like for us the car that's going to drive us uh, through all the different type of soil. And it's a very nice car because uh, it expresses the terroir very well. So we like to um, work with different growers along um, Seneca Lake. And they are, all have different altitudes, different kind of soil with mostly shell underneath. Uh, some of them are more um, gravelly. Some of them have more uh, sand or um, loam. And uh, thanks to this uh, grape variety, uh, it expresses the terroir very well because we ferment them all separately and we really feel uh, the difference uh, of the terroir uh, in the wine. That's why we have all these different single vineyards, because we are passionate about uh, what is happening underneath. And so you're uh, releasing wines um, with individual um, vineyard um, names, uh, yeah. and then you're also uh, using all of those wines um, in, in a blend, which is your sort of signature wine each year for Riesling. Yes, exactly. Um, the name are based on the growers because we try to work closely with the growers because if you don't have nice fruits, uh, you won't be able uh, to have nice wines. So that's the main uh, goal um, is to express uh, this uh, terroir and we like to work with them. So that's why we 
put their name on uh, on the label. And the classic, which is our signature wine, is the blend of all those different wines. Um, so it has at least one barrel of each one um, because it's the combination of, of this teamwork and it has all the DNA from all of these sites. Um, we do all this blending uh, regarding the classic. So we pick some barrels to make the single vineyard and then we do the final blend for the classic. And if we find there is a lack of uh, some powerfulness, uh, we would um, bring back some single vineyard barrack into the classic blend to be sure that the main uh, signature one is uh, what we what we want. Okay, and, and you have uh, uh, an impressive um, and hugely expressive um, different range of, of Riesling wines. Um, tell me about the other grape varieties that you're uh, now also working with here. Yes, so we, uh, since the beginning, we have Riesling and we've been working also with Pinot Noir. Uh, because it's um, a nice combination with the shell. Um, so we have different growers uh, for the Pinot Noir as well. Um, and every year we are making this uh, classic for the Pinot Noir and then depending on the year we'll uh, do uh, other single vineyard. Uh, and it's been uh, three years now that we've been making some Cabernet Franc, uh, which we love because we try to uh, extend our red uh, wines and Cafranc seems to be a very nice grape variety here, very resilient, so easier to grow uh, with a very nice ripeness uh, because it has time to ripe properly and um, we love the expression uh, here. Uh, and this year for the 2021st vintage, uh, we'll have now three growers, so we are really looking forward for those wines to come and show the this again uh, burgundy approach about the terroir through the Cabernet Franc because we've done that with the Riesling, the Pinot Noir and now the Cap Franc and we are making some trials about Chardonnay as well. So uh, where are you currently with Chardonnay then? It's just a trial so we've been working with uh, Kay Wood uh, which is a very old vines um, and uh, we've been aging half of them in uh, big barrels and uh, half of the other in uh, regular barrels and uh, it's really really interesting uh, as well um, so far now it's just one site and uh, we'll see how it's going to extend yeah and, and tell me uh, what um, for someone who, who grew up in um, the Rhone as you did uh, tell me what excites you um, in wine terms about the Finger Lakes um, I love uh, the cool climate aspect because uh, it makes wine very um, enjoyable. Now you have this very uh, good freshness, uh, very good expression in the wines. Um, I like the fact that you can drink them and go back to them uh, very easily. Um, and uh, here we have like a very big approach of burgundy style uh, of the expression of every terroir. That reminds me also what Louis did in uh, Saint-Combe. So he has his major wine, which is the Gigondas Classic, and then he picked the best terroir to make his single vineyard. And he applied that here um, in, uh, in the Finger Lakes. So we re really feel the influence of France in the way we do it here. And I think it's a very nice combination about uh, 
a new world uh, vineyard and all the uh, discipline and technique from France. And you're really seeing um, very um, different plot-specific characters here uh, around the around the lakes. Definitely, every year um, we taste through all the barrels and we really feel the difference in between all of them. Um, it's quite impressive because you can think that the vintage will have an effect and they're gonna maybe um, express in a certain way. We definitely feel that too, like 2020 vintage was absolutely gorgeous. So we feel the sun uh, in this uh, vintage, but still we have all the terroir um, effect and every year you could recognize uh, a Leiden Frost, a Breckenesque, uh, due to the splintiness or the saltiness. So every year you have the expression of the plot and we it's a very nice game every year. It's a very joyful moment to blend and taste through all those wines uh, to pick which one gonna be the single vineyard. Yeah, well, I, I really enjoyed tasting those different expressions. So um, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you for coming. So what about the soils around the Finger Lakes? Well, they were formed by glacial activity and shale dominates, though there's also plenty of limestone too. Josh Wigg represents the third generation at Lamoureux Landing, which arguably has the best view of Seneca Lake, the biggest and the deepest of those lakes. There's 11 Finger Lakes. We're on Seneca Lake, which uh, has... Uh, over 50% of the volume of all of the all the lakes are right here in, in Seneca. It's also the deepest, 650 feet deep for pretty much the length of our entire property. Hasn't frozen over in over 100 years, so soaks up heat all summer, gives it back to the vines all winter. It's the only reason we can grow vinifera uh, where we do and how we do. And uh, what about the soils that you're growing uh, that vinifera on? Uh, yeah, so the Finger Lakes are glacial, carved out over about two million years of uh, uh, glaciers coming in from the north and, and receding uh, back to, to whence they came. Um, basically, the last time they receded, they, they just dropped a patchwork, a quilt of glacial till soils. Um, we deal with about 30 different soil types, but predominantly plant in four or five that we really identify with. Um, they are all limestone and uh, shale-based, and uh, we really like to key in on the differences of varietal and uh, how each clone of those varietals uh, respond in those, those unique soils. One of the things that I've learned while I've been here is just that sort of um, patchwork that exists of, of different uh, soils in, in, in what is, uh, certainly by American standards, quite a small space. Um, what impact is that actually having on, on the wines that are produced? Yeah, for us, it's everything. It's, it's our variability because we are such a small footprint here. We have about a thousand acre estate, uh, 120 acres uh, under vine. Um, we're really looking for those nuances of microclimate, uh, you know, to include proximity to the lake, elevation above the lake. Um, slope makes a huge difference with our western facing uh, vineyards in terms of heat and um, and the like um, but what's what's underneath the, the vines are uh, their root systems are amazing we give them no other job uh, for the first three years other than putting roots down and sometimes that's five to seven years before we'll take a commercial crop from from a site um, so 
it, it's everything. And uh, we find that that translates to the wines. Uh, it's, uh, it's amazing. We're able to kind of tease those threads out using our, our single vineyard recent program. Uh, we have just as many uh, clones and uh, soil combinations of Chardonnay as well, which is equally as expressive of, of those soils. And uh, if you move too far from the lake, it's no exaggeration to say that you'll get nowhere with a vinifera vine. That's right, isn't it? That is correct. Yeah, you, um, we're, we're, we live on the edge every year, even where we do plant. Um, and if you get outside of, of that comfort zone, um, yeah, anything above ground, unless you're into burying your canes uh, of every vine every year, um, you, you are going to be ripping and replanting um, very often, <laughs> especially with our climactic uh, uh, volatility right now. How cold does it get uh, on the coldest nights in winter here? Well, it can get down to negative uh, 10 to negative 15 degrees Fahrenheit, so well, well um, uh, down there to, to where nothing, doesn't matter what varietal or what clone of the varietal, any living tissue above ground is going to be gone. And do you lose vines sometimes, presumably, do you? Uh, we, luckily, we, um, we haven't for a long time. Um, you know, back in 2004, 2005, we were not hilling up, um, which is, um, you know, basically pulling dirt up around the, the graft unions and, and protecting a few basal buds so that we didn't lose uh, our uh, now 40-plus-year-old rootstocks. Um, so even in the coldest of years, if we did have damage, uh, either complete or partial, um, you have basal buds to renew the trunk from and you're not ripping and replanting completely. So we've found ways to mitigate the risk, uh, but the risk will always be there. Then you get to summer and actually the climate is really rather lovely for a vine, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the vines, uh, if they can get through the winter, they have everything they need to, to not only uh, survive, but to thrive. Um, our loam soils with uh, all of the organic matter that they could ask for. Um, our biggest problem is, is slowing them down and balancing them and, and having a, a nice clean trellis, um, getting you know, sun exposure and that nice air exposure uh, on every cluster. That's what we focus on viticulturally throughout the growing season. But good diurnal shifts in temperature. So um, we are still cool climate, even though um, we get lots of heat. Uh, it comes during the day and it goes away at night. So the air uh, will turn over with the lake. Um, you know, the lake's going to um, mitigate the, those temperature swings. Uh, and it'll actually, you know, if we get down uh, low enough at night, the vines shut down. They stop with their transpiration and respiration, which is what metabolizes acidity. So we're able to retain acidity even in the warmest of growing years. And that is uh, what we're all about. That's, a, that's our signature. We've been tasting uh, Riesling, uh, which uh, no surprise, you have a, you know, a, a really um, uh, uh, impressive beguiling range of Riesling. Um, we've tasted some fantastic uh, Cabernet Franc as well. Both of those grape varieties um, are the, the kind of, um, are the signature grape varieties, I suppose it would be fair to say. But then I've tasted some really lovely Chardonnay with you uh, today too. And I, I wasn't necessarily expecting to find um, a significant amount of, of Chardonnay here in the Finger Lakes. But is this something that's, um, uh, that, that you're kind of seeing more of? Um, it's something that we are, are definitely driving uh, in terms of Lamarill Landing. In terms of the region, uh, I don't think uh, Chardonnay is the, the, the cool kid or ever going to be the cool kid on the block. Um, 
Um, you know, we, we are planting more Chardonnay, um, not every year, but it's it's definitely in our plans to continue and and grow that because we do we do love it and we we love to make sparkling, uh, we we love to put it in barrel, uh, we love to just drink it uh, right out of the tank. So it's uh, it's it's here at Lamoureux to stay, um, but I don't think you're going to find a lot of people uh, investing in the in the future of it in the Finger Lakes, even though they should. Uh, you are investing in sparkling wine as well, uh, and that's got uh, a lot of potential here, hasn't it? Yes, yeah. The, for, for all the reasons that we mentioned before um, in terms of uh, our soils and, and our climate, uh, it, it, it's a no-brainer. And, uh, you know, in the years when we can get Pinot to cooperate, it's not just Chardonnay. Um, we can do lovely, uh, you know, Brut or Blanc de Noir, um, but every year, pretty much, we can we can do our Blanc de Blanc, uh, which is 100% Chardonnay, um, and uh, we uh, can do it all all uh, the way we want to do it. So it's all uh, hand picked and whole cluster pressed, and a uh, minimum of three years in tirage, and you know hand riddled, hand disgorged. Um, so hopefully someday we'll out you know be able to grow up and and. Uh, uh, Put a, a little bit of modernization into the process, but it won't change the the fruit and and that uh, lees aging, which is is everything. One of the other things that uh, struck me here um, is the very collegiate nature of uh, the people who make um, the wines. Um, there, there, there doesn't appear to be kind of competition as such. Uh, it's there's a huge amount of cooperation. Uh, have I just got a rose tinted view, or is is that the reality? No, I, I think you've got a very accurate uh, picture for sure. Um, it, it's coopetition, so sure, the, there's always going to be competition to get on the, the right wine list and, uh, and the like. But at, at the end of the day, um, everyone is, is, will bend over backwards to, to help each other out. Um, it's a small community. It's a very tight-knit community. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're all neighbors and we're going to share a glass of wine. And um, we really have to get ourselves out there as a region and market ourselves as a region. And um, you can't do that as a bunch of individuals. You've, you've got to be a, a unified front and you've got to have all those personalities um, pulling, you know, in the same direction and uh, for the same goals. And uh, there's a lot of people that are, are willing to do that. So it's, it's an exciting time. Uh, to be up here and to have people discovering, uh, you know, the Finger Lakes and and what uh, we have to offer. Josh Wig talking to me at Lamoureux Landing. To understand the extent of the shift towards vinifera grape varieties, it pays to talk to someone who dedicates much of his working life to planting vines. Tim Hosmer does just that, as well as producing wines too, under the family's Hosmer Winery brand, established in 1985. I grow grapes here at Hosmer Winery with my dad, Cameron Hosmer. He started planting grapes here in 1972. And for about 15 years after that, he was just a grape grower, produced grapes for some large wine producers and grape processors. And then in the mid 80s, uh, some market forces kind of threw a curveball really to a lot of growers, him included, uh, where that market kind of dried up. And so a lot of those growers, including my dad, uh, 
to sort of create a market for their crop started wineries. So he started the winery here in 1985 and it's just been kind of a slow burn of growth ever since then. And so kind of out of a, a, an act, uh, a corporate act, um, which caused um, some real financial strain uh, in the region, um, there was a kind of new wave of, of family winery born, really. Yeah, absolutely. There was a, something that was called the Farm Winery Act. Uh, it was the legislation that sort of made it easy for people to get a license to have a winery and a, at a small size. And that was sometime in the mid-'80s. It was before I was born. Um, and that it, did, it absolutely did. It, it led to a, a, a wave of new small wineries in the Finger Lakes. Um, and so that... It was uh, it was an interesting time. I mean, I was a little kid, but it was the the, the landscape market wise was very different. You know, uh, people that were coming from you know not having a huge margin. You know, being a sort of somewhat of a tight <laughs> financially as as a farmer, and then trying to start a winery, which is there's a ton of capital associated with with all sorts of wine equipment i mean stainless steel is expensive you know <laughs> and uh so there was it, it, it's it's changed a lot since then um and i want to say somewhere in the early 2000s there was sort of another wave and there was sort of uh a, a, an almost like a reawakening in the in the finger lakes where the, all of a sudden we started getting a little, maybe a little more global recognition or national recognition or even just on the east coast of the u.s and started really honing in working towards growing vinifera wine grapes um and there was sort of an explosion of new wineries and new plantings of wine grapes starting right in the, like probably the early 2000s and it's just kind of taken off since then for 20 years really now and that's led to this patchwork where you've still got some um, um, older school um, American uh, Labrusca uh, varieties, then you've got some um, hybrid varieties, and then you've got these uh, more recent, uh, generally more recent um, vinifera uh, varieties that we, we kind of wine lovers are very familiar with. You've got them all kind of uh, growing here to, to different extents. Um, it's uh, it, 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 that that kind of tapestry is sort of reflected on your own land, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's you know there is just like you said, it's it's um, there's a patchwork. That's a good way to put it. Because um, you know, back in the day, not to say that there wasn't vinifera planted. You know, our our first vinifera block is Chardonnay was planted in 1972, right along with all of our first plantings. It just was, uh, I think you know part of the market was just that uh those varieties the native americans the labruscas and the french american hybrids those sort of i would call them at this point kind of like heritage varieties in the finger lakes they really thrive they're very productive they're great uh growers varieties they're great in the field they're they're disease resistant and all that so if you're just just a grower they're ideal um and so then as then the Farm Winery Act and, you know, and then you're making wine and you're trying to market wine, well, then obviously that's going to lead you to more 
wine specific varieties that then are harder to grow, but maybe you can afford to do them because you're marking up your agricultural product as wine, right? Your margins have improved. So now you can afford to grow harder to grow varieties. But yeah, there's definitely a lot of holdover. So, I mean, we grow, let me think, I think three hybrid varieties and a, a Native American variety that some of those date back into the 70s. And that's super common in the Finger Lakes. Most wineries and farms will have a blend of maybe not as much Labrusca, but certainly French American hybrids and vinifera. And I think part of that is, is our climate and why they still hang on and why they're still around is a, obviously they're very productive, but they're, but they're reliable also because they're very winter hardy. And so if we get like this winter, we had here on our farm, negative six degrees, there's certain vinifera varieties that we grow that do not like negative six degrees Fahrenheit. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we're going to have a lower crop this year on some of those varieties. And, uh, the French American hybrids were, were untouched. We're going to have a full crop on them. So it's a way of buffering the, the differences in our climate. And maybe that we ha if we have a hard winter, we, we will still be productive as a region. And, uh, internationally back in London, we kind of, you know, uh, we're in raptures about you know, Finger Lakes Riesling or Finger Lakes Cabernet Franc. Um, I've already got into Chardonnay while I've been here. The sparkling wines really have enormous potential. Um, where you've got um, those uh, those hybrid varieties and those uh, um, sort of heritage American Labrusca, what are you doing with those grapes? Where are you directing those grapes? Yeah, so a lot of them go into blends. A lot of them go into blends. Um, we, we also make a a method champenois out of Cayuga white, a sparkling wine. Um, but it, they're, they're honestly more towards like a value product end. And there's also still like a lot of local regional demand for that style of wine, that more value style of wine. Um, I would say certainly like we're standing right here next to this planting machine. This is a grapevine planting machine. So I also, I do that in the spring. And so I've been planting grapes in the Finger Lakes since I, th I think my first year doing it was maybe 2002. We don't plant a lot of those hybrid varieties and native varieties at all anymore. I mean, it is, it's Riesling, it's Cab Franc, it's Chardonnay, it's Pinot Noir, you know, Gewürztraminer, Limburger, even getting into like now Merlot and Cab Sauve, like the, the, those varieties are, are clearly not only are they probably becoming now very much the standard for the region, they're clearly the future. Tim Hosmer, and he's absolutely right. The future is surely vinifera, and that future is bright, I think. Though Riesling definitely rules, Cabernet Franc is catching up rapidly. It really shines here. And based on what I tasted, Chardonnay also has a very promising role to play too, alongside traditional method sparkling wines with their thrilling acidity and bright fruit. The Finger Lakes is an exciting place to be right now, emerging, evolving fast. It is by any measure a region to watch.
The Drinking Hour on Food FM. It's time to celebrate some medal winners at the IWSC, and we're starting in New York State with a couple of spirits winners from the 2022 Spirits Judging, which took place just last month. Uh, the results uh, were revealed last week. And uh, first up, 24 Ligne American Brick Straight Bourbon Whiskey from New York. A uh, gold medal winner with 96 points from a judging panel that included Dawn Davis MW and the acclaimed whisky writer Colin Hampton White. Of this, the judges said, perfumed nose that brings interest with a touch of linseed combining with spring orchard fruity freshness and floral characters in the mouth. This is a light, easy drinking and extremely enjoyable bourbon that's incredibly well made. Hence, it's gold medal, I guess. And next, also from New York State, uh, from William Grant & Sons Distillers, Hudson Whiskey NY Short Stack Straight Rye Whiskey. Also gold medal winner from the 2022 judging process with 95 points. The judges said, refreshing mint, zesty citrus, soft honey and smooth coffee beans on the nose. Delightfully balanced and integrated with a lovely enduring sweetness supported by subtle oak and cereal notes. And what about a few wines, I hear you say? Well, these are from the 2021 judging process, as 2022 is not judged until the start of May. Um, let's begin uh, not a million miles uh, from the Finger Lakes uh, in Niagara. Uh, Pella Estates Winery, Andrew Pella Signature Series Riesling Ice Wine 2019. A gold medal winner with 97 points. Uh, ice wine, if you don't know it, is where uh, those Riesling grapes are frozen on the vine uh, it's that cold uh, leading to uh, an incredible sweet intensity uh, the judges said of this one an inviting nose of apricot quince mango and floral notes leads into a fresh beautifully smooth palate multi-layered and finely balanced zesty and honeyed with a long elegant finish masterfully made and glorious to drink Next, we'll stay with uh, Riesling, but a dry one this time, back in Europe from the Mosul Valley, uh, from which Hermann J. Wiemer uh, actually hails, as we heard earlier. Uh, Weingut Revachon, Ockfenner, Bockstein, Alterrieben Riesling, 2019. Uh, amongst all of those words, uh, Alterrieben, if you don't know it, that means old vines. Uh, this was uh, also a gold medal winner from a panel that included a master sommelier and a master of wine. In their tasting note, they said, this wine sings with fully extracted flavor from beautifully ripened grapes, top notes of jasmine flowers, lime zest, and varietal petroleum, yum. Mouth-filling flavors of pink grapefruit, mango, and white cherries, wet slate on the finish. Sounds delicious. And uh, finally, uh, back across the other side of the USA from New York State, uh, to California, a gold medal winning cab from the uh, Alexander Valley, uh, from the uh, legendary movie director Francis Ford Coppola's winery. Archimedes Cabernet Sauvignon 2018 won a gold medal with 95 points. This is 80% Cabernet Sauvignon, the remainder Cab Franc, uh, Petit Verdot and Malbec. And the judges said of this, expressive nose with dark fruits leaping from the glass. The concentrated palette shows juicy blackberry and blackcurrant fruit that's balanced by hints of menthol, graphite and lovely minerality 
well-balanced, excellent wine. And that seems like a good place to leave it. That's it for this week's edition of the Drinking Hour. Hope you enjoyed it. My thanks to all of those uh, who hosted me on my visits uh, in the Finger Lakes uh, last week. The warmth of the uh, hospitality uh, kind of rivaling the cool charm of the wines. So thanks to them. Thank you to you too for listening. And you can follow us at uh, Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter. And I'm Mr Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. Talk to you next time. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.